0: today I'm going to focus on the trial of Jesus. And as I've been thinking about the whole uh, business of leading up to Easter and what Christ suffered, you know, as you read the Gospels, you realize actually that the Gospel writers understate really what Jesus went through. I don't know if many of you have seen a film called The Passion of the Christ. Has anybody seen that? It's a Mel Gibson film a few years ago. You might have seen snippets of it on YouTube. And, uh, he goes into graphic detail. The gospel writers don't do that. In fact, uh, Mel Gibson's film was had an 18 certificate because it went into such graphic detail. The four gospel writers all write about the trial of Jesus. But I'm going to look at, I'm going to refer to all of them, We're going to look at John's gospel starting at chapter 18 and I'm going to be reading from verse 28 to verse 40 and then I'm going to be reading chapter 19. Verse 1 to 16. Here we go. John eighteen twenty-eight. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, We would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we've no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happens so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, "'It was your people and your chief priests "'who handed you over to me. "'What is it you have done?' "'Jesus said, "'My kingdom is not of this world. "'If it were, my servants would fight "'to prevent my arrest by the Jews. "'But now my kingdom is from another place.' "'You're a king then,' said Pilate. "'Jesus answered, "'You're right in saying I am a king. "'In fact, for this reason I was born "'and for this I came into the world.' To testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No! Not him! Give us Barabbas! Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. This, by the way, as we sang earlier, is Jesus in his glory. The whole story of the passion of Christ from the being in the upper room, being betrayed, being in the Garden of Gethsemane and sweating drops of blood, now the trial, then the crucifixion. This is Jesus revealing His glory. And it's, to us as human beings, it's unfathomable. And and for the rest of my life, I'll be thinking about the wonder and the glory of Jesus, that this is Him revealing His glory. So let's look at the trial As we look at the four Gospels, we realize that there there was more than one trial. The first trial was at night, where Jesus was bound, and he was led to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Annas was a former high priest. Caiaphas was the current high priest. He, at this point, is questioned about his teaching, and his disciples. And Jesus says, actually, what I've been doing has all been out in the public domain. Why don't you ask the people whom I was teaching? And for that to reply, Jesus is struck in the face by one of the high priest's attendants. Then the second trial is also at night when Jesus goes from Annas to Caiaphas before the chief priests and the Sanhedrin, which was the supreme Jewish court of justice at that time. They could find no credible witnesses at that point, so they brought up false witnesses to say that Jesus was going to destroy the temple in Jerusalem. That was never what he said. He was talking about his own body. Jesus at this point says that he's the Christ, the Son of God. He's accused of blasphemy. He spat on, he struck with fists, he slapped around the face. They blindfold him, and they say to him, Prophesy, who is it that hit you? Now, John uses the technique of irony throughout this whole account. Irony is a literary technique. It means that the full significance of a character's words or actions is clear to the audience or reader, but unknown to the character. So the character is doing something, and they don't know the full significance of what they're doing, but us as the reader, we do know. So, for example, when they say to Jesus, prophesy who hit you, what they don't know, but we know, is that at that very moment, one of Jesus' prophecies is being fulfilled. Because Jesus said to Peter, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. So while they're saying to Jesus, prophesy, one of his prophecies is actually being fulfilled. Because Peter is at that point denying who Christ is before the cock crows. We also see it in the fact that the Jews won't enter Pilate's palace. Why not? Because their fear, they're afraid of being ritually contaminated so they won't be able to eat the Passover. Now, there's a great irony there because they don't realize that they're standing before the very Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb himself. There's also an irony in that they want Barabbas released. Now, Barabbas is Aramaic for son of the father. So they want a Barabbas, a villain, to be released, but not the son of the real father, the heavenly father, to be released. So there's a lot of irony that John is using here. Also in verse 15, the Jews shout out, We have no king but Caesar. And yet they have the very king, the very king, standing before them. So John uses this technique of irony as he explains the trials. Now what they were doing was totally illegal according to their own laws. No trials for a start should be happening at night. This is a time of darkness in more ways than one. No, there are no witnesses against Christ. There should have been some true witnesses at this point. There are none. It's illegal. And then what should have happened, what was the custom was this. There should have been a vote. There should have been a vote starting usually with the youngest person going to the oldest. A vote on What would happen to the defendant? The youngest being first so that they wouldn't be influenced by the more senior members. That didn't happen. Also, they were meant to sleep on it for a night. They were not meant to make a decision on the day in such a case. But they did. So it was completely illegal what was going on. Now, the third trial happens at daybreak. This happens before the religious elite. When the whole Sanhedrin decide that Jesus should be put to death for blasphemy. Now, according to their laws, if someone was guilty of blasphemy, they could be stoned to death. So why didn't they do it? Well, John tells us in verse 31, they say, We have no right to execute anyone. The reason for that was this, that the Romans had taken upon themselves that right. Only the Romans had the right to execute people, and they were only going to execute people who uh, contravened their own laws. They weren't particularly interested in if you contravened a Jewish law, and that's why uh, Pilate tries to say to them, you judge them by your own laws, when they talk about blasphemy. It doesn't really concern the Romans. So the fourth, so at daybreak, the Sanhedrin decide that Jesus must face the death penalty. On the Fourth trial happens about six to seven o'clock in the morning when Jesus is led before Pilate, which is the passage that I've read out just now. They accuse him of being king of the Jews, of subverting the nation. Pilate's not really interested. When he learns that Jesus is a Galilean, we learn in one of the other Gospels that uh, Pilate then decides to send him off to Herod, who's in charge of that area. He's trying to absolve himself of responsibility. He doesn't want to get involved. When Jesus appears, For the fifth time before Herod, Herod wants to see him do some miracles. He's interested in being entertained by Jesus. At that point, Jesus says nothing. He does nothing. So they mock him. They ridicule him. They put a mock royal robe around him. And he gets sent back to Pilate. And here we are. Now it's about midday. So this has been going on since the middle of the night. This is the sixth trial that Jesus has faced. Things are beginning to hot up in more ways than one. The religious elite are fearing that the decision is going to go against them. So what they do is they stir up the crowd. And Pilate is caught here now. He's caught in a trap. He's caught in a moral trap. He knows that this is a false charge that Jesus is facing. I find no accusation valid against him, he keeps saying. He says it three times. And yet he's afraid when they tell him that Jesus claims to be the Son of God. Why is he afraid at this point? He's afraid because in the pantheon of the Roman gods, they had uh, believed that some of their gods would make appearances on earth from time to time. So he's afraid when he hears that Jesus is the Son of God. He's afraid in a superstitious way at this point. Also, his wife, we learn in one of the other Gospels, has a dream about Jesus, and she feels afraid. And she sends a message to Pilate saying, Don't have anything to do with this man. I've had a very disturbing dream about him. So here's Pilate. He's caught. Not only that, as Roman governor, you see, at this point during the Passover, there would have been thousands of people in Jerusalem coming from all over to celebrate the Passover. So he's afraid, as a Roman governor, what Caesar would think if a riot breaks out in one of his provinces in Judea. So he's there to keep the peace. So he has Christ flogged. Let's have him flogged. Now again, the gospel writers totally understate what would have happened at this point. What would have happened at this point is Jesus would have been stripped completely naked. Now I've seen many religious paintings over the years in many countries, and I've never ever seen any where Jesus has been depicted as naked. But he would have been naked at this point, he would have been tied up, his hands on a pillar, and he would have been flogged in the most barbaric way that would often lead to people dying. Again, the gospel writers don't go into the gory details, they understate what happens to them. But this is what would have happened. So Pilate's thinking, well, maybe if I have him flogged, that will satisfy them. So he brings Jesus out again. Here is the man, he says, but it doesn't satisfy them. They are determined that he's going to be killed, that Christ's going to be killed, and it won't. So then he thinks, oh, well, maybe another way in which I can get out of this is to offer them a, a swap with another prisoner. At this time of the year, it's the custom for one prisoner to be released. Do you want me to release Barabbas, who was a we would call him a terrorist today? He was an insurrectionist. He was a re- rebel. He was a murderer. Shall I have him released, or shall I have the king of the Jews released? And we know, of course, what happens. The crowd shout out. They want Barabbas released and not Christ. In addition to that, the Jews realize that Pilate's not really interested in the fact that Jesus is accused of blasphemy, and that's why they say, you know, that he is trying to overthrow Caesar as king. Then Pilate begins to take note of that and condemns Jesus to crucifixion. But again, we read in Acts chapter 4 verse 27, that, which leads me to think that the whole six trials are a massive sham anyway. Because it tells us in Acts 4.27, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city, i.e. Jerusalem, to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. So behind all what I've just said to you just now, there's been a conspiracy going on among the Jews, the Gentiles, and the Romans. We're going to get rid of this guy. He's a troublemaker. And they do. I want to make two points if I've got time. If not, I'll just make one. And they are this. The first one, God's greater purposes are being worked out. And the second one is the reign of Jesus is here in ordinary people. Let's see how far I can get. I want to ask you a few questions at this point. Do you sometimes feel as if your life is out, is out of control? Do you sometimes feel that you're powerless in the situation you're in? Maybe it's illness that causes you to feel powerless, and I know that some people, you know, have suffered a lot in terms of illness and still are in this church. I mean, I fortunately the Lord has given me good health generally, but a couple of years ago I had a virus, and I had it for about six weeks, and and I was just tired. I had no energy. I was just, and I used to drag myself into work. Slump on my desk. How I got through the day, I don't know. As soon as I got home, I crashed out and I fell asleep. Because I had no energy. I felt powerless at that point in my life. Or perhaps through no circumstances of your own, perhaps through the situation in the global economy, you lost, lose your job. You, you, you feel powerless. There's nothing you can do about it. It's beyond your control. Or maybe, you know, as happened to us a few years ago, you know, you want to move house You see a house you like, you pay for a survey and all that kind of stuff, and the day before, the the sellers decide they're not going to sell the house. You know, you feel powerless. You feel helpless. What can you do in that situation? Or maybe it's you suffered a bereavement, and I guess we all face that from time to time. Someone we love dearly, you know, dies, and we suffer a bereavement, and we just kind of feel helpless and powerless at that point in our life, and we've got no control over that situation. Or maybe we do our best to please someone. You know, we want to we help. We want to do the best we can, but they never seem to be satisfied. It never seems to be quite good enough. And, you know, we feel powerless and helpless here. In this situation that I just read out, <clears throat> Jesus seems to be powerless. He seems to be at the mercy of the chief priests, the officials, the Sanhedrin, there's Herod, there's the soldiers, there's a the crowd, there's Pilate. He's powerless, he's, he's shunted back and forth, from, he's bound, he's spat on, he's vilified, he, he's made to look like a clown with a mock crown of thorns on his head, he's dragged here and there, flogged to an inch of his life. He doesn't even have the strength to carry his own cross later on. And yet, as he stands before Pilate, verse 10 and 11, Pilate says, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? So Pilate's saying, you're in my hands. You're in my power. But Jesus answers, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Now, I think there's a massive lesson for all of us here that we need to learn. And I've thought about this scripture over many years When Jesus says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. It echoes something that the psalmist says in Psalm 31, where he says this, my times are in your hands. Jesus is in effect saying that. My times, they're not in Pilate's hands. They're in your hands, Father. They're in your hands. Contemporary English version puts it like this. My life is in your hands. See, I know some people who believe in fatalism. You know, that our destiny is, is predetermined by some mysterious thing called fate. And people are very keen on reading horoscopes and you know, finding out their star sign and looking at the stars. And quite frankly, all that nonsense in order to determine where their life is heading. Oh, today you will meet so and so and you will do this and that and the other. As if it's somehow predetermined. But actually, many religions kind of believe in that sort of fate as well. You know, you're born poor. Why? That's your fate. That's your destiny. That's just the way things are. Like fate is some kind of impersonal force. But we don't believe in that as Christians. What do we believe? We believe in a personal God, don't we? We believe in a God who loves us. We believe the Bible teaches that God is in charge. God is sovereign and his will will be done despite resistant, negative human choices. Jesus seems to be powerless, but he acknowledges actually that the truth is that his times are in God's hands. What about your times? What about the situations that you face. Whose hands are they in? See, God's greater purposes are being worked out. Joseph, we read in the book of Genesis, was sold into Egypt as a slave by his brothers. You know, how unpleasant is that? Rejected. In fact, they want to kill him at first. You imagine he's a young lad and they're discussing his what are going to do with him? They chuck him down a pit. And then he ends up in a dungeon in Egypt through no fault of his own. He's abandoned there. He's forgotten about, apparently, except, except he's not forgotten about. And eventually, when he rises to a position of power and he reencounters his brothers, he says this You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now whether Joseph actually all the time in the dungeon realized that, I don't know. But he acknowledges actually that he was not in the hands of fate, his life was not in the hands of fate, but his, ha- his life was in the hands of a loving God. Whose hands is your life in? In whose hands Are the situations that you find yourself in? You may not want to be in them. You may not understand them. But whose hands are you in? Is God able to work out His good purposes for your life in the difficult times when you feel you have no control over what is going on? I don't want to suffer. I don't want to go through any difficult times. I want life to be smooth as silk. I want to be no places of darkness that I I have to go. My father-in-law, a wise old man, said this to me once. He said, there is no progress, and I'm paraphrasing, there is no progress in the Christian life without suffering. I thought, I don't want to hear that. I really don't want to hear that. I just happened to be going through a difficult time at the time. But actually, as I've reflected upon it, it's true. It's true. God is working out his greater purposes through Christ. He works out his greater purposes in Joseph's life. We see it in the whole book of Job when Job is suffering. And yet God has got a greater purpose for his life as well. The same is true of you and me. The Apostle Paul says it like this. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We know that in all things, all things, so what exceptions are there to that? All things, all includes everything. What are you facing in your life? What obstacles are you facing? What difficulties are you facing? What trials are you facing? In all things, all things. God works for the good of those who love him. Jesus, interestingly, says to Pilate this. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. Is it relative? Is your truth as valid as mine? No, it isn't. We believe that Jesus is the truth. He says, I am the truth. We believe, believe in the truth that we are loved by God. God. We believe in the truth that Jesus not only desires our highest good, but that he has the power to accomplish it. Isn't that true? Do you believe that? If you're a follower of Jesus, do you believe that? You know, it's easy to believe that when you're on the mountaintop, when you're singing, when everything seems to be going very smoothly. But when you're not on the mountaintop, when you're facing a time of darkness, when you're facing a time of trial, and it doesn't seem to ever end... Do we still believe that we're in the hands of a loving God who is able to work out His greater purposes for us? Do we? (coughs) It's very difficult to, isn't it? So the second thing I want to say, and I've got five minutes to say it, is this. The reign of Jesus is here in ordinary people. You know, are there times when you feel weak? When you feel you can't cope? When you feel that it's all too much? When you feel like the psalmist... Oh, that I had the wings of a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Have you ever thought that? You're facing situations in life and you just think, I just want to get out of here. If only I could just lie on a beach somewhere and be untroubled by anything going on in life. Or whatever it might be for you. For me, it would be lying on a beach somewhere with a crystal clear sea with no hassles. All right. Oh, that I had the wings of the dove. But it's not always possible to do that. Frequently, it's not possible to do that. And even if you do get onto some exotic location, you've got to come back sooner or later. When Pilate asks Jesus if he is king of the Jews, Jesus replies, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You know, Jesus It was the sword of Rome that had conquered uh, the Jewish nation. It was military might. But Jesus has got a different method. I want to quote something from a book that I read recently. I read a biography of the Mongol uh, warrior and ruler Genghis Khan. And in the book that I read, right at the end, the writer wrote something which really interested me. He wrote this. (coughs) He wrote this. Genghis Khan was the greatest conqueror the world has ever known. He and his sons vanquished peoples from the Atlantic to the Pacific. The Mongols eventually reached Austria, Finland, Croatia, Hungary, Poland, Vietnam, Burma, Japan, and Indonesia. His empire stretched from the Persian Gulf to the Arctic Ocean. The Mongol Empire covered an area as large as Africa. Next. All this was achieved by a man who seemed to come from nowhere. The only similar feat, though in a very different sphere, was that of Jesus of Nazareth. How did, you see, the Mongols were uh, brilliant strategists, military strategists, and they were ruthless. When they faced opponents, they would just slaughter them men, women, children, no compunction, loot the cities, leave it desolate. But Jesus says, I've got a different way. I've got a different way of establishing my kingdom. And yet Jesus seems we can help us here. Do you feel we can help us at times? And yet his kingdom is being established even in the face of the opposition that he's facing. The apostle Paul says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So here we see Jesus seemingly helpless, seemingly at his weakest, but he's saying my kingdom is established in a different way. So what are the weapons that we fight with? We fight with the truth of the gospel. We fight with the power of the Spirit of God. Let me show you a picture now as I finish. This, I see this every year. I've seen this every year, probably for the last 17 years. And it's in the car park next to the King Center. And it's a picture of a flower. Do you know what they're called? Yeah, they're called grape hyacinths. And they grow up through the concrete and the tarmac every year. You know what tarmac's like? It's really tough stuff, isn't it? And concrete's really hard stuff. And yet this little plant makes its way up every year. And it reminds me of something. It reminds me of this. It reminds me of the power of God. And the power of God is not always dramatic. It's not always bolts of lightning. And frequently it's a quiet power. It's interesting as well, Jesus often used his part in very quiet ways. You notice that when you read the Gospels. So for example, he takes someone who's deaf and he takes them away from the crowd where there's nobody around and he performs a miracle on the man, his quiet power. Or he goes to a little girl's parents' house with a little girl who's dead and he says, oh, she's only sleeping. They laugh at him. He sends everybody out, and he does a quiet miracle, and he brings it back to life. See, the power of God is not always dramatic, but the power of God by the Spirit is within you. And I've been teaching English to people whose first language isn't English, and here's a new word, and it might be a new word for some of you I don't know, and it's this, indomitable, indomitable. Can we say that together? Indomitable. Because we have within us an indomitable power. What do I mean by that? It means a power that can never be conquered. It's the power of the Spirit. You feel weak. You feel helpless. You feel situations are out of control. God has a higher purpose. We may not see it, but we believe it. Because we're in the hands of a God who loves us. And we have a power within us, this power of the Spirit, which is indomitable. Amen? Can I just finish by saying this? I would like us to say a few things together. I'd like us to affirm the truth. You see, I believe this. My life is in God's hands. If you believe that, maybe you'd like to say that with me after three. One, two, three. My life is in God's hands. It's not fate. It's not circumstances. It's not situations. It's God's. And I believe this as well. He is working out his purposes in me. He's working out his purposes in me. If you believe that too, maybe you'd like to repeat it after uh, say it with me after three. One, two, three. He is working out his purposes in me. Amen? And they're good purposes and he wants us all eventually to be presented before his throne with exceeding joy and he has the power to do it. Amen? Amen.